You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Glennis Young. She's a, a professor in the History Department and the Jackson School of International Studies. She's also on her second of three years as the John Bridgman Endowed Professor in History. Uh, some of you may remember Professor Bridgman. She got, um, Glennis got her, PA, uh, her BA from the University of Pennsylvania in History. She got her uh, master's degree and PhD from Cal Berkeley. Her dissertation was directed by some of the most distinguished figures in, in the whole field of, of Russian and Soviet history, like Reginald Zelnik and Nicholas Wyshynovsky. Uh, she has multiple honors and awards and publications and accomplishments. I'm not going to list them all for you here. I just want to focus in on a few things. Uh, in our program, she teaches not just the history of 20th century Russia, but she also uh, teaches the history of communism, a course on the Cold War. She's uh, got a new course on revolution. Uh, so she's, she's really taken her sort of uh, Russian base and, and expanded it to cover uh, these uh, much broader issues. I want to mention a couple of Glennis' books, which are actually for sale outside, that are uh, quite impressive. The first one is called Power and the Sacred in Revolutionary Russia, Activists in the Village. And this, was about, this is about the Russian peasants in the 1920s and how they responded to Soviet anti-religious campaigns. And this was really, as one critic wrote, a crucial and seminal book, highly innovative. I was in Poland a few years ago, and a, a Ukrainian professor comes running up to me. Oh, are you from University of Washington? Do you know Glenis Young? She's shaped my whole thought on state and religion and society. So she made a, an impact. And then um, her most recent book is called The Communist Experience in the 20th Century, A Global History Through Sources. And this is an extensive collection of materials uh, about a vast assortment of people. And it really looks at, at people as individuals. And, and so we get their diaries and letters and autobiographies and, and uh, court documents and excerpts from all sorts of things that, that connect with them and how they experienced communism. So you learn how, you know, why some people converted to communism. You learn about sports under communism and entertainment under communism and dissent and repression and ethnic issues and family life and childhood. Uh, it's a, a great assortment and it's not just about Russia, but it covers a number of Asian countries, a number of Latin American countries, a number of, East, of European countries, anywhere where communism either was in charge or where a communist party had some impact. Uh, and uh, critics really like this book as well. It's, uh, she's been praised for her prodigious effort. And one of my favorite uh, comments on the book is by Jeffrey Wasserstrom from Cal Irvine. This is a much needed book, exclamation point. And you know, when, when editors let you use the exclamation point, it means they really must uh, agree. Um, the communist experience moves not just between nations, but between continents to convey the rich range of rhythms, dilemmas, pleasures, and sorrows of daily life in state socialist settings. As topically eclectic as it is geographically far-flung, 
Young's book will be a godsend to many different kinds of teachers. And if you're a teacher here, especially in, at college or uh, high school level, this is a book you might want to consider. There's, there's, it's so rich in material, um, uh, you'll find many things in there that would be useful. I want to just conclude by making a couple of, of points about, uh, about Glynis. Uh, number one, she's very much not afraid to go outside her comfort zone. Now, you know, tonight's Bolshevik Revolution, that's her comfort zone. Uh, but she's also kind of embraced the Spanish-speaking world. She's learned Spanish. She, uh, her new book is going to be on Russia and Spain and Spanish Civil War and Spanish refugees that end up in Soviet Union. And she's bringing Cuba into her research interests. So she's got this, this uh, uh, you know, going beyond Russia into this whole other uh, part of the world and, and bringing those things together. And the other thing I, I learned recently about Glennis is even though she started here as an assistant professor in 1991, she was actually a UW student back in the mid-80s because her first trip to Russia was on a language program that was run by UW professors, so she had to get a UW student ID number, and she has a transcript. I haven't seen the transcript, but I'm assuming it's a 4.0. And so even back in the 80s when she was a, you know, a honey bear or whatever the hell they're called down at Berkeley, um, she was really a husky. <laughs> and so it's with great pleasure that I introduce my colleague, friend, and fellow Pennsylvanian, uh, Professor Glennis Young. Thank you, James, for that very kind introduction. Ten Days That Shook the World. Those six words were the title of Oregonian John Reed's account of the Russian Revolution of 1917. Reed was only 30 years old when he witnessed what has been called the decisive event of the 20th century, the second of Russia's 1917 revolutions. Reed's geographical and cultural displacement and the translation of his book into countless languages seems an appropriate beginning for our exploration of the Russian Revolution's global significance over 10 decades. The Russian Revolution was made in the remnants of the sprawling and war-torn Russian Empire, but for the liberation of all humanity from capitalist oppression. Its consequences were felt all over the world from 1917 onwards, though not in the ways that Lenin and its other revolutionary architects intended. What I will offer you tonight, after a brief overview of the Russian Revolution's first years, are snapshots of its global impact. I will take you beyond a list of events that could not have happened without the Russian Revolution, or that occurred in the way that they did because of the Russian Revolution. I will seek to transcend a post-Cold War triumphalist approach that blames the Bolshevik Revolution for many of the horrors of the 20th century. Many others have taken such approaches, including in the recommended books by Stephen Smith and Martin Malia. So give yourself 10 points and shots of vodka if you like, if you read those books from cover to cover. Rather, in exploring the revolution's global significance, my examples are as follows. The unappreciated ways in which the Russian Revolution shaped 20th century state violence, and the unforeseen ways in which its refugees transformed the societies in which they landed. Geographically, we'll cover a lot of territory. This movement from the Soviet Union outwards 
and back again reflects my own intellectual journey. I'm a historian whose interest in the Russian Revolution and its global consequences have taken me to Russia, to Spain, as James mentioned, to Cuba and elsewhere. Tonight, I ask you to join me as I take stock of how the revolutions of 1917 were decisive for the 20th century and why that matters for the world of which we are all today citizens. We will examine 10 decades of the global Russian revolution that has shaken the world and all in 50 minutes. The second of Russia's 1917 revolutions, called in the Soviet Union the Great October Socialist Revolution, followed eight months after Tsar Nicholas II's abdication at the request of his generals. Amidst strikes and street protests in a Russian empire roiled by disastrous defeats in World War I. Nicholas's abdication in February 1917 led to the collapse of the Russian autocracy. This was a world event. Whoops. <laughs> I see we haven't been in sync. So here's where we're going. Let's pause for a second. Here's where we're going. Here's the New York Herald covering the uh, events of February. And now let me tell you a little bit about the coverage. This was a world event covered in newspapers around the world, though with differing interpretations. Here you see the New York Herald depicting February as state collapse caused by patriotism, revolt against pro-German influence, and food shortages. After February, a provisional government of liberals and moderate socialists shared power antagonistically with the Petrograd Soviet, a council of workers, soldiers, and sailors' deputies representing the laboring classes. Then, as the winds of winter blew from the Gulf of Finland into Petrograd, the imperial capital, Vladimir Lenin's prophecy came true. Here we see Lenin arriving at Petrograd's Finland station, about to begin disseminating his maximalist vision of revolution right here, right now. Russia indeed turned out to be the most susceptible country in the world to a Marxist revolution of the workers of the world against their capitalist oppressors, a sort of sec secular second coming. And so on October 24th, 1917, according to the Julian calendar in use in Russia until 1918, Lenin's Bolsheviks, a radical Marxist party that had appeared in the late 19th century as an illegal conspiratorial operation began to act. Let's walk in the Bolsheviks' shoes. The Bolsheviks, who controlled the Petrograd Soviet's Military Revolutionary Committee, or MRC, seized the most crucial government operations. The MRC, led by Leon Trotsky, seized Petrograd's power centers through a military operation. They took control of the telegraph office, located at most 10 minutes by foot from the Winter Palace, residence of the Tsars. When we view this image, the Tsars' attendance on Palace Square, we can appreciate how subversive both of the revolutions of 1917 were. As an aside, before we continue walking in the Bolshevik shoes, 
The image before you, a Stalin-era painting at the 30th anniversary of the Bolsheviks' Great October, depicts the storming, so more focus on this painting. When we view this image, the Tsar's attendance on Palace Square, we can see how subversive even this second of Russia's 1917 revolutions were. As an aside, getting to this one, before we continue walking in the Bolsheviks' shoes, the image before you, a Stalin-era painting at the 30th anniversary of the Bolsheviks' Great October, depicts the storming of the Winter Palace as having involved greater heroism and more popular participation than it did. Nonetheless, to return to revolutionary events, the Bolsheviks seized Petrograd's railway stations, MRC forces erected roadblocks to halt movement over the city's bridges, which linked its islands, its working-class bastions, its government institutions, its university buildings, its shipyard settings. They surrounded the Winter Palace, which, however, did not fall into Bolshevik control until late evening on October 25th. October was a world media event, as this image from the Seattle Star demonstrates. Its meaning was even more debated, of course, than that of the February Revolution. Here we see the star insisting that October was not a true revolution, but rather a plot to make peace, a radical contrast to the definition of October in the painting that you just saw. Had you been walking down Petrograd's most famous thoroughfare, Nevsky Prospect, pictured before you on one of those October days, perhaps doing some shopping, you might not have realized, in fact, that a momentous world event was in motion. In general, the streets of Petrograd were devoid not only of violence, but also of disorder of any kind. At 9 p.m. on the night of October 25th, John Reed was dining at the Hotel de France, which was close to the Winter Palace. True, after he finished his soup, his waiter requested that he relocate into a dining room at the back of the building. The waiter warned the Oregonian that because shooting might occur, the lights in the cafe were about to be turned off. Two hours later, as the Bolsheviks were about to make their final push for the Winter Palace, pedestrians nearby did not even know what was going on. An ordinary resident of Petrograd, Volodya Averbach, wrote this about his walk home late that night. The street was completely deserted. The night was quiet. We could even hear the echo of our own footsteps on the pavement. There was no or almost no resistance, violent or otherwise, to what has been called the Bolsheviks' minor military operation. Lenin, in an oft-quoted remark to Leon Trotsky that the Bolsheviks' revolutionary gamble had in fact succeeded, reflected that it makes the head spin. Indeed, despite the anticlimactic form that these revolutionary events took, in the almost 10 decades since Russia's October, the world has been spinning from revolutionary vertigo. But the anticlimactic form of the Bolshevik seizure of power should not be taken to mean an absence of revolutionary ferment in Petrograd and the rest of the Russian Empire. If we consider only the eight months between the collapse of the autocracy in February 
and the Bolshevik seizure of power in October, we see a deepening process of political radicalization and polarization. The membership of the Bolshevik party in the empire grew from 24,000 at the time of the February revolution to 350,000 members in October of 1917. In Petrograd, the membership of the party increased from 2,000 in February to 60,000 in October. The Bolsheviks' basic program, peace, withdrawal of the Russian army from the war, land, social revolution in the countryside, with, with peasants getting jetry land, and all power to the Soviets, workers' control of industry, commanded increasing adherence, adherence among factory workers facing lockouts by powerful industrialists. True, the most popular radical party in 1917 was the peasant-based social revolutionaries. But especially from July and August 1917 onwards, working-class support for the Bolsheviks in Petrograd's factories increased. Soldiers who had not deserted the front were reading Bolshevik newspapers and becoming persuaded by a radical Marxist take on Russian realities. They listened to Bolshevik agitators at the front as you see depicted here. Soldiers such as these constructing what a distinguished historian has called trench Bolshevism found that the radical Marxist analysis of the class dimensions of the army and the way in which bourgeois officers viewed the soldiers as fodder in a war of imperialist aims resonated with their own experience. For example, on July 8, 1917, two soldiers on the southwestern front wrote a letter to the Bolshevik party stating that they considered the Bolshevik program the most just. They said that they needed the program of your Bolshevik party just like a fish needs water or a man air. Yes, the nature of the increasing support of factory workers, soldiers, and sailors, and even peasants for the Bolsheviks can be questioned. How much did new members of the party or new Bolshevik sympathizers really understand the Bolsheviks? But certainly the depth and breadth of popular support for the Bolsheviks could, should convince even the most skeptical of the following. Even if informed the Bolshevik October was a minor military operation, the Bolshevik party had a growing social base in the sprawling Russian empire. Nor should the anticlimactic form of the Bolshevik seizure of power divert us from the event's global significance for the historical actors who made it happen. Lenin and the Bolsheviks saw themselves as beginning a revolutionary process that would in inevitably cover the globe. Lenin and the Bolsheviks believed that their seizure of power, a revolution of the proletariat or industrial working class, was the product of a lawful progression of history as class conflict and of history moving inexorably towards a secular utopia. When Lenin and the Bolsheviks, for example, analyzed the French Revolution, the subject of Professor Jonas's superb lecture last Wednesday, they saw a decisive watershed in humanity's progress. 1789, the Bolsheviks believed, had broken the chains of feudal society the capitalists or bourgeoisie had seized political power to remake the world's social fabric, to build factories, railways, and cities, 
to create legal codes to make capitalism work, and to create a new political culture to keep the capitalists in power. Just as the bourgeoisie had made a global revolution, covering the earth with capitalism and bourgeois political institutions, the laws, elections, popular assemblies that replaced feudalism's monarchy, royal decrees, and hierarchical society of lords and vassals, so too did Lenin and the Bolsheviks see themselves as making a global revolution. Theirs, though, was to begin the process of liberating all humanity from capitalist suffering and creating the truly socialist society. Lenin's Bolsheviks went on to establish the worst, the, the, not the worst, the world's, <laughs> that was not an intended joke, but I guess it turned out to be a joke, the world's first socialist political order. As they did so, they took their cues from basic texts of Karl Marx, but they also improvised. They disagreed among themselves about what to do and when to do it, and responded to Russian realities. They instituted state control of the economy, they eliminated private property, seizing it from urban capitalists and other property owners. The Bolsheviks ratified the peasant seizure of lands that had taken place in the summer of 1917 as the deserting soldiers came home and spearheaded agrarian revolution. Peasants now satisfied their longing for land, a longing that had not been quenched by the emancipation of the serfs in 1861. Bolshevik adherents confiscated the opulent urban palaces of Russia's gentry in the name of revolution and turned them into communal apartments for workers. The utopian vision driving such reorganization of the built environment can be seen in the image before you, a sketch for communal, a communal apartment or communal apartments by an artist whose architectural designs would come to fruition in the Stalin era. For the Bolsheviks, the revolution meant remaking everyday life, sometimes through violence, sometimes through education, sometimes through the power of what we today call the media, film, posters, newspapers. In this poster, we see a key element of the Bolsheviks' attempt to transform everyday life, liberating women, from the patriarchal control of the czarist period, and in particular, freeing them from kitchen slavery in the name of a new existence in Russian Novoblit, the words in Russian to the left of the blue circle on the screen. The Soviet Constitution of 1918 gave women and men equal rights, a turning upside down of the patriarchal legal and political order of the czarist empire. We see Soviet women, workers, and peasants receiving the grace of the revolution in this famous poster, what the October Revolution gave to women workers and women peasants. Believing that socialism meant a secular, non-religious society, the Bolsheviks closed churches and turned them into anti-religious museums, storage places for grain, and schools. Here, we see the physical process of taking icons and iconostases out of an Orthodox church and destroying them. They are lying in heaps upside down on the ground. Not all of this remaking of everyday life was, 
in the decade or so after the October Revolution, controlled by the Bolsheviks in a top-down fashion. Ordinary Soviet citizens, for example, named their children in seemingly spontaneous fashion after Bolshevik leaders and in accord with the revolutionary pantheon. So Ninel, which is Lenin spelled backwards, became a popular girl's name. So far, I am not aware that Putin's name spelled backwards. <laughs> Neetup is a popular name for babies in Russia these days. And as for Trump spelled backwards, <laughs> for babies born in the next few years, I'm afraid that this name choice is not great. It can't be pronounced. Sad. <laughs> I need a drink of water after that one. The regime the Bolsheviks created survived anti-Bolshevik forces whose counter-revolutionary military armies plunged Russia into a horrific civil war that did not end until 1921 to 22. Lenin not only knew that civil war was a likely consequence of the Bolshevik revolution, but he even welcomed it. He believed by, that only by defending the revolution from military assault could capitalist forces be decisively purged from the socialist society in the making. But while Lenin might have welcomed civil war and believed that Bolshevik victory over counter-revolutionary or white forces was inevitable, Bolshevik power was in severe jeopardy at three crucial junctures, the summer of 1918, the spring of 1919, and the fall of 1919. In this map, we see how anti-Bolshevik forces encircled a Moscow-centered heartland controlled by the Bolsheviks. Bolshevik victory over white forces should be explained not by Marxist appeal to the laws of history, but by a combination of Bolshevik advantages, including geography, control of Moscow, the industrial heartland, and the railway network, military prowess, Leon Trotsky's achievement of creating a disciplined Red Army out of workers' militias, tacit support of peasant seizure of land, and ability to integrate lower class elements into a Soviet regime that was built during wartime. The weaknesses of anti-Bolshevik forces, including political differences and lack of military coordination, mattered too. In addition, the Bolsheviks employed guerrilla warfare to their great advantage, especially during the Russo-Polish War of 1919 to 1921, when Poland and Ukrainian nationalists joined forces to battle for Soviet Ukraine. In this slide, for example, we see a Polish regiment during the Russo-Polish War. The Polish occupation by Kiev, by regiments such as these, was followed by a Red Army counteroffensive to the hinterlands of Warsaw. The Bolsheviks, having defended their great October from its enemies, went on to build socialism. Not just anywhere, but in a Soviet Union that would encompass one-sixth of the globe, extending from the Arctic to the Black Sea, from the shores of the Baltic Sea to those of the Pacific in the Russian Far East. After Lenin died of a massive stroke in January of 1924, Joseph Stalin, pictured here at Lenin's funeral, 
consolidated his power by eliminating, eliminating powerful rivals, such as Leon Trotsky and Nicholas Bukharin. Here we see Trotsky, the great leader of the Red Army, and here is Bukharin, the great Marxist-Leninist theoretician with Stalin on Red Square. In 1929, Stalin launched his great break, heavy industrialization and forced collectivization, or building Soviet socialism according to his vision. In 1934, at the 17th Congress of the Communist Party, Stalin proclaimed that socialism had indeed been built. Stalin and his loyal lieutenants then proceeded during the great purges of 1936 to 1939 to defend their version of socialism, as they saw it, by executing founding members of the Bolshevik Party and ordinary Soviet citizens who supposedly were engaging in terrorist plots, sabotaging industry, and otherwise attempting to defeat the revolution and restore capitalism. In this painting, for example, we see the artist Alexander Mikhailovich Gerasimov's depiction of a wise Stalin who has protected the Russian Revolution from sabotage and counter-revolution by purging the revolution's enemies. The Russian Revolution redefined the political landscape of the 20th century. On the one hand, it became the model that the revolutionary left around the world sought to emulate. Win I Kwok, after 1941, Ho Chi Minh, the founder of the Viet Minh, the communist independent movement in Vietnam, who you, whom you will hear more about in Professor Giebel's lecture next Wednesday, exalted the meaning of the Russian Revolution for all humanity through space and time. Like the brilliant sun, he said, the October Revolution shone over all five continents. There has never existed a revolution of such significance and scale in the history of humanity. In the image you are viewing, you see Ho in 1920 in Paris at a Congress of Socialists in France where he became attracted to communism in the wake of the Russian Revolution and the failure of the Versailles Settlement to bring independence for Vietnam. The late Fidel Castro, speaking on Moscow's Red Square on 28 April 1963, claimed, we ourselves shall never forget one circumstance. The Cuban Revolution became possible only because the Russian Revolution of 1917 had been accomplished. For your revolution was accomplished in the name of the good of all mankind. Mankind will proceed along its victorious path. In the image you are viewing now, you see Fidel on Red Square in Moscow, in front of the Lenin Mausoleum, where he's joining hands in a celebration of proletarian internationalism with Premier Nikita Khrushchev. You will hear more about the Cuban Revolution in Professor Rodriguez Silva's lecture. But if the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 was from radical Marxist Leninist revolutionaries like Ho oh, and Castro, the brilliant son, for the multifaceted political right of the 20th century, conservatives and fascists, it threatened humanity with a dark living hell. Winston Churchill, for example, claimed that the Bolsheviks were enemies of the human race. And to give but one example of countless fascist demonizations of the Russian Revolution, 
The Nazi ideologist Alfred Rosenberg wrote in 1942 that Bolshevism was a European sickness generated by the Enlightenment and French Revolution. These ideas appeared in the book on the left of the image before you. Moving on to the early 21st century and the revolution centennial, the triumphalist stance of victory in the Cold War has generated an equally oversimplified verdict of the Russian Revolution's significance for the 20th century. For if the West won the Cold War because socialism in Russia and elsewhere was doomed to fail because Marxist Marxism-Leninism's utopia was based on erroneous assumptions about humanity, then the Russian Revolution's global significance is equally easily distorted. It becomes difficult, if not impossible, to understand how and why oppressed people around the world saw the Russian Revolution as a beacon of hope, as a noble dream they could make their own. But this they did. Let us take examples from all over the world, starting right here in Seattle. During the Seattle general strike of February 6 to 11, 1919, one of the pamphlets distributed on Seattle streets was Russia Did It. Addressed to Seattle shipyard workers, it stated, quote, the Russian workers took over industry in their own interests. There is only one way out, a nationwide general strike with its object, the overthrow of the present rotten system, which produces thousands of millionaires and millions of paupers each year. The Russians have shown you the way out. What are you going to do about it? Later that year, Seattle longshoremen showed their sympathy with the Bolshevik revolution when they would not load arms being sent to the anti-Bolshevik or white General Kolchak in Siberia. Heading to the African continent, we find that soon after the October Revolution, black Africans from Senegal to South Africa hailed the USSR's proletarian internationalism and Lenin's theory of imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism, invoking the latter to attack colonial rule. The Senegalese political activist Lamine Senghor, pictured here, joined the Communist Party of France. Heading to Asia, here we see the site in Shanghai of the 1921 founding of the Communist Party of China, and on the right, a youthful Mao Zedong, the Chinese Communist leader. The founding of the Communist Party of China occurred two years after the creation of the Communist International, or Comintern, a Moscow-based global organization devoted to the spread of communism. There was also grassroots enthusiasm for the Russian Revolution in Latin America, as demonstrated by this image of handmade political posters crafted by Argentinian university students influenced by communism. Notice where the arrow points, the poster that says, Let's commemorate the 11th anniversary of the death of Lenin, the great and immortal genius of the Communist Party. As the capitalist world plunged into depression in 1929, worldwide enthusiasm for the Russian Revolution and Soviet experiment increased. As seen in this image of English communists leaving for Moscow, their voyage east 
to celebrate the 12th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution coincided chronologically with the 1929 stock market crash. We've now completed our overview of the Russian Revolution and the complex reactions, ideological opposition and civil war, but also worldwide enthusiasm it generated. Let us now examine the first case study of the unappreciated ways in which the Russian Revolution shaped the 20th century, state violence that crossed borders for both nefarious and noble ends. What I will focus on is how the violence of the Russian Revolution, specifically the Russian Civil War of 1918 to 22, was exported beyond Russian borders in the other military conflicts in Europe between the two world wars. We will see how the guerrilla violence of the Russian Civil War reappeared in Spain in the Civil War of 1936 to 1939, in the early years of the Cuban Revolution in the 1960s, and in the Vietnam War in the 1960s. If we take a transnational approach to the violence of the Russian Revolution, one that moves outward from the Soviet Union to excavate unrecognized connections between Russia and other nations, what might we learn about the ways in which the violence of the Russian Revolution shaped the 20th century? In the 20th century, more human beings died or were killed by other human beings than in any other century. To explain the 20th century state violence, analysts have classed the blame in different places. Nationalism, the machinery of the modern bureaucratic state, and the political practices of the French Revolution, such as the Jacobin Terror, one dimension of Professor Jonas's lecture. In the search for the ultimate source of the scale and forms of 20th century state violence, the Bolshevik Revolution has received its share of the blame, too. To provide an alternative view of how the Russian Revolution may have made 20th century state violence, I situate that revolution in the broader framework of a European civil war. By European civil war, I have in mind the following, an epoch of military violence and ideological, cultural, political, social, and economic conflict that is said to have begun either in 1914 with the outbreak of the Great War or with the Russian revolutions of 1917, especially the Bolshevik revolution. The chronological endpoint was 1945 when fascism's defeat brought a resolution of the conflicts and their military expression that had racked the European continent since 1914. For many contemporaries and historians alike, it was the Bolshevik Revolution that shattered the old 19th century world. And it was the Bolshevik Revolution whose rupture opened a Pandora's box that caused not only in logical, but also in an inevitable fashion, the violence and conflict of the European Civil War. But how exactly did the Russian Revolution generate such violence across borders? Here, I focus on the human beings who, as they crossed national boundaries, carried the violent practices of the Russian Revolution, especially Russian Civil War, across space and time and how they, in doing so, they adapted them to different circumstances. 
I examine how the violence of the Russian Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1922, shaped the violence of the Spanish Civil War from 1936 to 1939. Fratricidal conflict on the Iberian Peninsula began on July 18, 1936, when General Francisco Franco staged a military coup against the democratically elected Spanish Republic. Less than three years later, the war ended with Franco's defeat of the Spanish Republic or loyalist forces. This map depicts the increasing Francoist territory and shrinking loyalist territory a little more than a year into the war at the end of August 1937. This was four months after Hitler's German Condor Legion destroyed the vast city of Guernica, marked by the arrow in horrific bombing of civilians. As for connections between the Russian Revolution and Spanish Civil War, it's well known that Soviet military advisors and other personnel were on the ground in Spain. Soviet military advisors aided the Republican side as Franco's forces extended their territorial control over large swaths of Spain. These Soviet military advisors in the Spanish Civil War differed in many respects. But with few exceptions, the common denominator was that they had helped the Soviet's Red Army defeat their enemy, the White Armies, during the Civil War. In the Russian Civil War, Soviet military advisors in Spain had seen combat action and had commanded battalions and regiments. Among them was the man you see pictured here, Alexander Orlov, Soviet secret police or NKVD head in Spain. Orlov's border crossings are visually depicted in the page from his passport on the right. Soviet advisors introduced military strategies derived from the Russian Civil War into the Spanish Civil War that otherwise would not have been there. And this mattered for the unfolding of the Spanish Civil War as demonstrated by one of its key events, the Republic's defense of Madrid, which stretched from October 1936 to January 1937 in response to nationalist assault. In this image, taken on Madrid's Calle Toledo, you see the battle cry, they shall not pass, no pasarán, employed by Dolores Ibarri, a founder of the Spanish Communist Party, for the city's defense from Franco's advancing forces. During the, the attack on Madrid, Soviet advisors who had fought in the Russian Civil War were instrumental in transforming the disorganized forces of Republican militias into a centralized hierarchical fighting force, the Spanish Republican Army, or Ejército Popular. They reproduced in Spain their creation of a hierarchical, disciplined, regular army out of the factory militias or Red Guards of the Russian Revolution. They brought to Spain the lessons they had learned from defending the Russian capital, Moscow, from the white armies. They applied these lessons to defending Madrid, the Spanish capital. And they brought to the Battle of Madrid their experiences in the Russian Civil War of commanding, participating in, or otherwise witnessing guerrilla actions against anti-Bolshevik forces. Soviet advisors played a crucial role in importing guerrilla tactics from the Russian Civil War to Spain, 
where they trained guerrilla specialists for the defense of the Spanish Republic. Soviet advisors, certainly with, with Stalin's knowledge, established six schools for guerrilla specialists in Spain. Their operatives learned guerrilla tactics that came right out of the Russian Civil War, especially the Russo-Polish War of 1919 to 1921. Those tactics included demolishing bridges, con conducting raids and ambushes, high-grade marksmanship. Republican guerrillas operated small groups of about seven to nine. By night, they would cross into enemy territory with missions such as blowing up bridges across railroad tracks, and in turn, setting mines to blow up the emergency army squads when they claimed came to the scene. Let us continue to follow the border crossings of the violence of the Russian Revolution during the European Civil War. When the Nazi Wehrmacht invaded the USSR on June 22, 1941, many of the key Soviet advisors in Spain, though not Orlov, who had brought guerrilla tactics from the Russian Civil War, were now back in the Soviet Union. Now officers in the Red Army, their mission was to defeat the Nazi invaders of the USSR. Joining them in the USSR were Spanish Civil War exiles, among them Spanish Republican military officers who served in the Red Army, even if they didn't command troops. In any case, Stalin drew upon their experience in Spain as he began to listen to his generals in mapping out military strategy against the Nazis. In so doing, the Soviet Union applied the lessons of Spain regarding guerrilla practices. The guerrilla strategies that the USSR used against the overextended Nazi Wehrmacht were drawn straight from the Spanish Civil War, in which, we as we have seen, the lessons of guerrilla warfare from the Russian Civil War were applied. Soviet partisans or guerrillas used tactics adapted from the Spanish conflict, blowing up bridges and troop trains, setting mines on roads, and plundering supplies and ammunition to disrupt German lines of communication lines that extended from Stalingrad to Poland, from Leningrad to Latvia, from the Caucasus to Kiev. These military tactics prevented Nazi supplies from reaching Wehrmacht troops deep in Soviet territory. And so, when the guerrilla tactics of the Russian Civil War adapted to the Spanish Civil War came home, they helped the Soviet Union defeat Nazi invaders. In turn, the guerrilla violence of the Soviet guerrilla units in World War II, which, as we've seen, was developed out of the Spanish Civil War and the Russian Civil War, was further applied in the Cuban Revolution. Fidel Castro drew on the military advice of Soviet advisors of Spanish origin, that is, Spanish Civil War exiles, such as Francisco Ciutat de Miguel. In Cuba, Ciutat, advising Castro, applied guerrilla tactics he learned from Soviet advisors in Spain. Here we see the late Fidel Castro honoring Ciotat de Miguel for his services to the revolution, helping to defeat counter-revolutionaries while Raul Castro watches. Ciotat de Miguel also provided advice on guerrilla warfare 
to the revolutionary leadership in the Vietnamese War, acting as a key military advisor to the revolution's most important military strategist, General Vo Nguyen Zap. In the example we've just seen of the global journey of Russian Civil War guerrilla violence, the violence of the revolution shaped the violence of the 20th century. But there was nothing predetermined about it as earlier commentators of the Russian Revolution and 20th century violence have asserted. Rather, the guerrilla warfare of the Russian Revolution had the effects that it did over time from the 1920s to the second half of the 20th century and over space from Spain to Cuba to Vietnam because of the unpredictable movement of revolutionaries across borders. Important too was their ingenious adaptation of guerrilla tactics to the different military and revolutionary circumstances they faced. Now let us turn to our second major example of the Russian Revolution's global consequences. This one too involves the movement of people, culture, and ideas across borders. Our topic is the great global refugee movement that the Bolshevik seizure of power, the horrific seizure of civil war, and ensuing famine produced. It's well known that the Russian Revolution generated a refugee movement of people who, fearing for their safety in military conflict and facing political persecution, sought sanctuary across borders. The main period of emigration occurred between 1917 and 1923 in what has evocatively been called a massive human relocation, at least one million people fled. Among those whose lives were uprooted, whose dislocation is depicted here in refugees taking shelter between boxcars, we find former nobles, industrialists, and opponents, military or not, of Bolshevik power. Yet, they came from every social class. Some were children. Whatever their social origins, because they were opposed to the Bolshevik regime, their property was confiscated and they faced risks of arrest, imprisonment, and death. The routes by which they left were varied. Some headed to Finland. Others went west, crossing into Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Still others left via the Crimean Peninsula and still others headed east to Vladivostok and beyond. Where did they go? Well known are the examples of the white or anti-Bolshevik emigre movement in Paris, France, and other European cities, such as Belgrade, Berlin, Constantinople, Prague, Rome, Zurich, and London. In December of 1921, when the Russian Civil War was for all intents and purposes over, a Russian refugee in England, the journalist and politician Ariadna Turkova Williams lamented, never in the history of Europe has a political cataclysm torn such huge numbers of people from their mother country and from their homes. Here, we see a notice for a benefit dance sponsored by the Russian Re Refugee Relief Association in 1922. Less well known, 
is that Russian refugees as stateless persons settled far beyond Europe. In the Middle East, Turkey was a popular destination for those who left via the Crimean Peninsula, as depicted in this photograph of anti-Bolshevik refugees arriving in Gallipoli. And the next image of refugee women in Istanbul. Take a moment to think about the mixture of longing for Russia and excitement to be in a new place they must have felt. In Asia, Russian refugees found safe harbor in many places, often, in fact, in port cities such as Shanghai, whose Russian Orthodox Church, which a few Chinese also attended, is pictured here. In Latin America, the main destinations for Russian refugees were Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico, with fewer heading to Chile, Guatemala, and Uruguay. In this photograph, for example, we see some of the approximately 8,000 refugees, Ukrainians in fact, who came to Brazil between 1924 and 1933. In Africa, Russian refugees settled in the Belgian Congo, South Africa, and Tunisia. Before you is Anastasia Monstein Cherinsky, who left Russia by the Black Sea and the, lived the rest of her life in Tunisia's port city of Bezerte, where she died in 2009 at age 97. Russian refugees sometimes endured in ongoing odysseys with further displacement from their first sanctuaries because of other revolutions or civil wars. And so in 1949, with Mao's communists about to proclaim the People's Republic of China, some of the Russian refugees in Shanghai left for Tubaba in the Philippines. There, in the camps in which they lived, they maintained their own cultural practices, as you see in the Russian Orthodox wedding pictured here. Refugees also settled in Australia and New Zealand. So let's travel the globe, not just to show that Russian refugees landed on all the continents, but to understand the cultural interactions they produced, the ways they helped to change the societies in which they sought to integrate themselves, and a mixed record on refugee relief, including in Seattle. When we follow Russian refugees around the world, what do we find? Tremendous human suffering. As one refugee relief worker, a nurse, wrote, the world will someday awaken to the unspeakable horrors of the Siberian death trains in which human naked bodies, frozen stiff, loaded on train platforms like logs of wood, blocked whole lines of transportation for days and weeks. But to follow their refugees and try to listen to their voices is to learn stories of amazing human resilience and perseverance. To follow them is to learn about conflict between them and other refugees, such as the Italian community in Brazil that didn't want Russian refugees there. To follow them is to be inspired by the generous and creative ways that people around the world cared for and provided for refugees, and to be horrified by the selfishness and callousness with which they were also treated. Indeed, the experience of Russian refugees were so varied 
and their influences on the societies they lived in so diverse that the only way to begin to appreciate their significance is to examine specific cases. So let's focus on two, Shanghai and Seattle. First, Shanghai. Approximately 25,000 to 50,000 Russian refugees landed in Shanghai after the Bolshevik victory in the Civil War, after victory became imminent. Some arrived, arrived by sea after grueling journeys. In December of 1922, for example, Shanghai residents watched as warships, icebreakers, mail ships, and other ves vessels, all of which had left Vladivostok, docked in the Chinese port city. How might these Russian refugees have shaped Shanghai in the Republican period? First, let's not romanticize their lives. They were experiencing profound cultural dislocation, and in many cases, poverty and discrimination, in part due to language barriers. But some refugees, through great personal effort and resilience, became professionals, working as doctors, lawyers, academics, journalists, and engineers. Among the businesses they operated were bakeries, hair salons, grocery stores, haberdasheries, breweries, and restaurants, such as the Petrograd establishment in Shanghai's Little Russia, depicted here. You, see, you can see Petrograd if you follow the blue arrow. The kinds of businesses they operated together with the cultural norms that they introduced were perceived by Chinese observers to have brought an elegant European atmosphere to Shanghai, as demonstrated by the dress of, many, of some of the pedestrians. To wind up, our talk tonight, let's proceed from Shanghai to Seattle, examining a few examples of the unexpected ways that Russian refugees shaped our city. It was in 1920 that the first significant wave of Russian refugees came to Seattle. An especially large number came in 1923 to 1924, with 6,000 said to have arrived in 1923 alone, and the population of Seattle at that, at that time was roughly 315,000. Seattle's track record with the Russian refugees is mixed and cautionary. When we examine it, we should realize that we need to do much better for the refugees now in our midst. On the one hand, the city gave them sanctuary, but the motives were not always pure. In a letter of April 1923 to the president and members of Seattle City Council, a Seattleite said that the chief reason for taking them in would be to counter, as he put it, the erroneous opinions existing elsewhere, that Seattle is a notoriously red center. He wrote, here is an excellent opportunity to show the metal Seattle is made of when it comes to opposing Bolshevism, Bolshevism in any and all of its malignant manifestations. So much for the humanitarian concerns about the dignity and rights of the individual. Refugee relief seems to have often fallen to the Russian community itself. The track record here is not a jewel in the crown of the Emerald City. Father Alexander Fyacheslav, a priest at St. Spiridon's Orthodox Church, then located on Lakeview Boulevard, would meet boatloads of Russian refugees when they arrived after crossing the Pacific Ocean. He'd help them find jobs and housing 
and even aided some of the refugees in matriculating at the University of Washington. One of the Russian refugees seeking sanctuary in Seattle in the early 1920s was Alexander Ryabov. On September 1st, 1923, he arrived in Seattle from Manchuria with his wife Sonia and their daughter Helen. Writing retrospectively, he explained why he and his wife decided to come to the United States. That's simple to explain. In Germany, we would be forced to become Germans. In France, Frenchmen. But in the USA, we'll be Americans, just like everyone else. <laughs> so it was settled. The three of us left for Harbin, left Harbin for Japan, where we boarded the President Jackson and sailed for the United States. Here, we see Raboff's naturalization certificate showing the location of their home in Seattle, on the right. Ryabov's daughter, Helen, became an internationally known geneticist at the University of Washington, and her husband, Arthur Whiteley, was a distinguished University of Washington specialist on sea urchin development. Like other Russian refugees, Helen used her knowledge of the Russian language in her professional career, serving for five years as chair of the US contingent in the United States-USSR Joint Working Group in Microbiology. When Helen died in 1990, her grieving husband founded a University of Washington refuge to honor the memory of the Russian refugee's daughter, the Helen Ryabov-Whiteley Center at Friday Harbor Laboratories, a retreat for scholars of all disciplines and for artists of all professions, as Arthur Whiteley's Seattle Times obituary puts it. As these examples from Shanghai and Seattle suggest, refugees of the Russian Revolution had a significant effect on the societies in which they landed. Yes, like all refugees, many were poor and sick and longed for the homes that they had left behind. But they were not only victims. They not only integrated themselves into new cultures and learned new languages, but also left indelible cultural imprints on the places they took refuge. Then, as now, their displacement and suffering elicited generosity, callousness, selfishness, and everything in between. Tonight, I've covered tremendous ground as I have taken stock of the global significance of the Russian Revolution. I dispense with the standard list approach to the global significance of the revolution. I eschewed a post-Cold War triumphalist mindset that blames the Russian Revolution for the horrors of the 20th century. Instead, I've emphasized the less obvious ways in which the Russian Revolution has shaped the world since it occurred 10, days ago, 10 decades ago. We've examined the global journey of guerrilla violence from the Russian Civil War to the Spanish Civil War back to the USSR in the defeat of the Nazi Wehrmacht, and then across seas and continents to the Cuban and Vietnamese revolutions. We've seen how refugees of the Russian Revolution shaped the societies in, in which they were displaced, with effects that linger to this day including in Seattle and its environs. The Russian Revolution's global significance over the course of the 20th century runs the gamut from horrific violence that claimed, claimed millions of lives to social welfare programs 
around the world that benefited millions of people. May we move forward to extract its ideals of justice and equality, whose embrace made John Reed leave his comfortable life in Oregon and travel halfway around the world. These are the ideals that this image celebrates, a poster commemorating the fifth anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution with iconic monuments from around the globe in the background. When you look at this poster, what do you see? As we meditate on the revolution's ideals, may we learn the lessons of avoiding the rupture and unforeseen consequences of violent transformation of a world too quickly torn apart. Thank you. There are postcards been distributed, correct? And so you can write your question on the postcards and pass them up, and then we'll pick some of the questions and ask them to Professor Young. And let me, um, can I ask the first? Sure, I want to ask the first question. So you showed how, sort of how you know, Russian influences went out throughout the whole world, and you showed how the Russians kind of, uh, the Bolsheviks could plug themselves into this tradition going back to the French Revolution. But I was wondering, is, is there, are there sort of like Russian precedents? I mean, do Russia, do, did the Bolsheviks look back to events and conspiracies and peasant revolts and things like that within Russia and kind of put themselves into that as well, or was that just something? Beyond? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I did very much in the talk try to link up with the influence of strands of Enlightenment ideology on the Russian, on, on Russian Bolshevism. Uh, but in very, in, in, the, in different ways, there's a different story about the Russianness of Bolshevism. Mm -hmm. Let me just take one strand of okay. what you asked me, sure. uh, among the many that I could take. Okay. So after the Bolsheviks seized power, and after they fought off the revolution's enemies and went, uh, and went on to create a regime and, as they saw it, keep the revolution going. For them, the revolution was not, in fact, just 1917, 10 days. It wasn't even 1917 to 1922, end of the Civil War. It wasn't 1917 to 1932, the end of Stalin's Great Break. It wasn't 1917 to 1938, the end of the purges. It was really the whole gamut of the Soviet experience up until 1991. Anyway, as they, uh, were, uh, as they were continuing to make the revolution, and as they looked at ways, and as they dealt with that at different junctures in the history of the Soviet Union, they began, of course, to draw upon aspects of the Russian past and use aspects of the Russian pre-1917 past in ways that, that furthered their political interests. Mm -hmm. And among the things that they did, for example, would be to go back and find cases of peasant rebellion, uh -huh. such as the Pugachev Rebellion in the 18th century, 
and try to construct a, an almost teleological or lawfully progressive chain of rebellions in mm -hmm. Russian history that then uh, culminated in the Bolshevik Revolution. Okay. I mean, that's a somewhat simplistic view, okay. but yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and some historians would say, such as Richard Pipes at Harvard, I think he's still alive, I hope he's still alive, um, would say that there was something intrinsically Russian too about Bolshevism, mm -hmm. about because it was precisely in Russia the lack of private property, the ways in which czars thought of the entire realm as their property that suppressed the kind of development of civil society and rule of law that you got in the West at roughly the same time in the 18th and 19th century and created, with a lot of other factors thrown in, a fertile ground for the emergence of Bolshevism. Okay. So uh, some of the other questions have, have come in now. So let me ask, um, oh, here, here's, a, here's one. Um, what revolution had the greatest impact on the world? The American, the French, or the <laughs> Russian? Well, I'd really love to invite my co-panelists up here. Um, or have a debate. And, but we can also invite uh, those who have yet to present. Oh, boy, that is, that is a really challenging one. It depends on, you know, it depends on, so the question again is which, which revolution had the greatest impact on the world? Uh, yeah, greatest impact uh, on the world. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, that, I am going to say that they all had great impact on the world. Uh, I would, I, I have to say that I would not put the American Revolution at the top of, of the three in mm -hmm. terms of impact. Okay. I would say that the French Revolution, this is not a direct answer to the question, but without the French Revolution, there almost surely would have been no Russian Revolution. Okay, sure. So I would vote among those three for the French Revolution, but that's a hugely complicated question to answer. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, how, did, how did Lenin pay for the revolution? How did it get financed? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's not as though he was able to, let me try to make a joke here that's appropriate. It's not as able to, that he was able to kind of put up on you know, Facebook or something, go fund me to fund the revolution. Um, a lot of the money came from, some of the money came from bank raids, actually, mm -hmm. that okay. some of the Bolsheviks including Stalin, were involved in. Uh -huh. What about, um, you had the poster with the women kind of being liberated from the kitchen, and so one of the audience asks, like, you know, as we get later into the century, we see just men sort of in the photos, and it looks like this ended up being kind of like a, a male-dominated yep, operation. Yeah, that's a great observation. When, when does that happen? When and why does that change occur? Yeah. Uh, well, there were very, very few women in the Bolshevik party in 1917. There were a few. Uh, among them was Lenin's wife, um, Krupskaya, and a few other important uh, women as uh, Bolsheviks who 
wrote important things, but basically this was really from 1917 onwards, and even before that, when the Bolshevik was a conspiratorial underground uh, movement, this was a, chiefly a male, pretty much a male um, party. Um, not that the Bolsheviks didn't try to reach out to women, not that, that they didn't, well before the image that you saw, not that they didn't champion um, women's liberation from Tsarist era uh, patriarchy, uh, which they saw as a product of capitalism chiefly. Um, but I would say that a couple of factors increased the, or, or kept the, Bol the Bolshevik party in terms of the elite as a male, chiefly a male party. Uh, and among them were the fact that one of the most important events in shaping the Bolshevik party early in the revolution was the Russian Civil War. A lot of party members joined the party during or after the Civil War, and so the party uh, became uh, filled with Russian uh, Red Army soldiers and a kind of militarism that to some extent was already there before um, the October Revolution was intensified as a result of the Civil War and the tremendous prestige that winning the Soviet, the, the, the Civil War gave the Bolsheviks. Okay, thank you. A couple more questions. Um, how did Trotsky like, get so good at organizing a military? How did Trotsky get so good at organizing a military? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, he, he significantly had to learn, in part, on the job. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly what his background was in military strategy, mm -hmm. but he, I'm guessing he studied um, military strategy uh, from, ar from around the world and throughout history. There are some historians who would say that he was so good at organization precisely because he was a Bolshevik. Sure. And it was Bolshevik ideology, its natural centralizing tendencies, its emphasis on discipline. If you were a revolutionary, you were a 24-hour, 24-7 revolutionary, and that it was, in fact, Bolshevik ideology and political practices that, say, that predated 1917 and the Civil War, that an underground conspiratorial party that had to be very well organized, that in part contributed to Trotsky's effectiveness in organizing the Red Army. Well, thanks. How much, we have much, how much more time do we have? One, okay. So this, this will be the last question. This, is a, um, this could be a tough one. Um, <laughs> was the revolution essentially inevitable? I know historians are supposed to say nothing's inevitable, but was the revolution inevitable, or could one or two events have turned it in a different direction, or even maybe kept it from coming about? Yeah, great question to end on. How do I want to um, approach this? I don't think that the revolution was inevitable. I think I would say that it's, it, it's explainable. Mm. Um, I, I didn't 
say this directly in my remarks. Um, I alluded to it at one point, but I see both revolutions in 1917 as really beginning with a crisis among political elites in the Tsarist Empire, not a bottom-up movement of the Bolshevik Party or the socialist revolutionaries or disgruntled peasants during World War I, um, soldiers deserting and coming home. So this was a process of state breakdown that began at the top. And although there are certain, re because of conflict with, within political elites, I mentioned, for example, the fact that Nicholas II was asked by his generals to abdicate because uh, they were very worried about the fact that since he was commanding troops, he was doing a pretty bad job and, uh, and on and on and on. So this is a, if I say that this is a process of state breakdown that began with the conflict within political elites, like I would say the French Revolution, I don't know what you think, Ray. Um, and like other revolutions around the world, then that, that might make it seem like I'm saying the, the revolution was inevitable. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think it was inevitable. I think it was explainable. It's certainly possible if somehow Lenin had not been able to go back to uh, Russia, to the Russian Empire in April of 1917, it's possible the Russian Revolution never would have happened. More than likely, it would have just because their, their Bolshevism was not about just Lenin. It was a, a way of understanding Russian realities, Russia's place in the world, and there were others who could have made it happen. Um, there were other very militant Bolsheviks um, who were very dedicated to the revolutionary cause. So that's what I would say. Thank you very much. There was a, there was a joke in uh, Hungary in the 80s, uh, I'm remembering, uh, that, uh, that asked, what's the cause of our problems today? And then the answer was, a weak defense of the Winter Palace. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Professor Glenn Young. <laughs>